truth of the matter was, stories was everything, and everything was stories. Everybody told stories. It was a way of saying who they were in the world. It was their understanding of themselves. You know, I have a really bad memory. I don't know if it's because of uh, I was a I'm a paratrooper, and I had a, quite a bit of concussions and, and some other things. I think some of my drug abuse also. I don't remember too many things. I just remembered uh, going into the, to the military. I remember going to a hotel where they, they let you stay the night before and signing up. My parents were happy because, you know, I was getting tr into trouble, and, and I wore the baggy pants and the shaved head. And, so I went from that to wearing a green uniform and, you know, having that sense of pride. And I was going to start my new life away from everything. I was going to have a GI Bill. There was promises of citizenship. I have the Humanitarian Award, Army of Commendations, National Defense, a Good Conduct Medal. The Humanitarian Award is from Hurricane Fran, service ribbon for being in service, my airborne wings. So I have uh, various tattoos. I have a Compton tattoo. You know, uh, I have the Mexican emblem. I have my brother and my sister who passed away. Uh, I have uh, a friend that, not, that passed away as well that got killed. Uh, my daughter's name is Vaughn. On my back I have a paratrooper with, uh, with uh, wings, skull. And I have a big tattoo that says Banished Better. The reason I got that is because I really believe in, in what we're doing. And in a sense, we are banished. We're, we're, we're forgotten. Well, my name is Hector Barajas Varela. We're at, in Tijuana, Mexico, and uh, we're at the, what we call the bunker, which is the Deported Veterans Support House, where we take in men that are deported, that served the U.S. military, uh, either honorably or dishonorably, it doesn't matter to us, as long as you served and you wore the uniform. I was uh, born in Fresnillo, Zacatecas, which is down south. I came to the United States when I was about seven years old, illegally. My parents are originally from Zacatecas, which is like a ranch. There was no water, no electricity, the farming community. So I remember going with my grandpa. When, instead of using like tractors, they would have to use like, you know, donkeys to primitive compared to like what they have in the States. Farm corn, uh, they farm frijoles, beans, chile. The poverty, you know, that, that, that we live in, you have to go get water from a from a water hole instead of just turning on the faucet. I remember using the, to clean ourselves with the bathroom, it was the, after you take off the corn, left of the corn, that's what we'd use for, for toilet paper. My parents were already in the United States when, because uh, they left us, and then one of our aunts took us to Tijuana, and that's how we ended up crossing over. I'm not sure how, how we ended up in the States. I just know that my parents were probably saving up enough money to be able to pay the coyote or, you know, whoever was going to bring us down. I had no idea about the United States or anything like that. Just another place, you know, I don't think when you're a kid, you're, you don't 
think about immigration or you know for us it was we were just going on a trip and we ended up with our parents so we had no idea what immigration or the united states was it's now you're just in a better place with your parents that was it when i first got here i i got here to gardena california so it was uh it was a lot better than the states <laughs> you know yeah hot water and turn on the gas stove and instant gas and caught on pretty quick to english and had really good grades my parents, when, when they came to the United States, they were able to uh, get their green cards. And once they were able to get their green cards, and then we got our green cards, must have been in the sixth grade when that happened. Elementary and middle school, I was really into my education. We went to D.C. One of my teachers actually paid for my trip to go to D.C. So I was doing really good. And like I said, that, that's just grew up like any old American kid, you know, until I moved to Compton. As far as we can tell, authorities are unable to control. Now the curfew soon will be in effect, and then we'll see what effect that has. Compton is just a city that's been a very rough town from the 70s and, and up. Less than 10% of the young people are in gangs, yet they are responsible for as much as half the crime. And in the 80s, there was a lot of drugs and gangs, and that's when it was really active. A lot of racial division. They're across the street, down the road, up the hill, around the corner, all around. Ritualized combat with large forces and darkened schoolyards and parks. You know when it really, when you really get a sense of those things is when you start hitting middle school. There was a vision like with uh, the Mexican kids would only hang out with the Mexican kids and there was gangs already there and racial fights, a black neighborhood where we're not wanted and you couldn't walk this area. It is likely to be a very, very long night tonight and things may not be much better tomorrow. And then high school was just, it, was, it got even worse. I was ditching a lot, you know, in high school. Hung out with, you know, with a certain crowd. Guys that were in gangs and stuff like that, Sureños, the, you know, the, I grew up guys from 155th Street. A lot of those guys are in prison or dead. And my teachers actually, they, I guess they saw something in me and they would tell me, hey, you know, you know, get your, get, get your act together. And then I was DJing in high school. I bought my equipment and stuff like that since I grew up. Listening to rap, I played rap and old school, you know. Yeah, parties and, you know, like friends' parties. I still have my equipment right out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I ended up getting uh, kicked out of high school for not going to class, and then just I did get into, you know, quite a bit of fights and stuff like that. I would see the ROTC guys, but like, they never really interested me until the recruiters started coming around. The Army's special two-year enlistment can get you to college two years wiser. And with the GI Bill and the Army College Fund, up to $17,000 richer. I want to get away from all this bullshit, you know, and get away from everything. Just the thought of being a soldier, everybody wants to be a G.I. Joe, everybody wants to wear a uniform. And for me, it was a form of getting away. You know, I didn't have really any future. What, where am I, you know, what am I going to work at a factory for the rest of my life? So the thought of joining the military was something that I just had to sign some papers and I'm, and I'm gone and, and I start my new career. So it was really awesome because I got to meet so many different people, Puerto Ricans and white kids and black kids that had nothing to do with gangs or none of that bullshit. I was promised citizenship when I joined the military. But, you know, after being in the military after a while, it, it was, uh, it was, that was not a fact. 
the expectation that you're going to go and kill and or whatever is that's obviously that's put into into your head in basic training but you're joining the military you're not joining the girl scouts part of the reason i joined was you know obviously patriotism totally feel that this is you know still my country even though i'm, I'm still i'm over here and part of it is just getting the hell away from the hell out of dodge you know where i'm at opportunities to do something and to have your college paid for I finished basic training, did my AIT in Fort Sam Houston, where you learned your, uh, your type of job that you're going to be doing. And I couldn't go infantry because, because I'm colorblind. I didn't know I was colorblind until I joined the military. So there's a lot of things that I just off the bat I could not do. I was going in actually as a patient administration, so told me I was going to work, be working at a hospital around the, you know, pretty nurses and all these good things. From there I went for, to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And that's when I had orders to go to 44th Med. So I was going to be in a regular hospital you know, job and finish my military service right there. But when I got to there, they, you know, Fort Bragg, North Carolina is known for the home of the Airborne or 82nd Airborne, which is America's Guard of Honor. It takes skill and courage to earn the wings of an airborne soldier, a way to deliver soldiers directly to the battlefield, anywhere in the world, rapidly and ready to fight. So you're like, shit, I want to do that, <laughs> you know, and, and I decided to do it, you know. Interesting enough, rarely happens, but most of the guys that went to the airborne units already were qualified as airborne. So I went at, to the unit without being qualified as airborne, so I went, went there with no wings. Everybody's already qualified and you're like the only one. To attend, you must volunteer and arrive in good condition for daily physical training. Practicing parachute landing falls until you get them right. The thing about jumping is you don't really know what's going to happen. Parachutes are designed so you can hit the ground as soon as possible so that the enemy doesn't pick you off in the air. There's that fear of my parachute going to open or am I going to, you know, they talk about guys getting tangled together, or you land in the trees, all these different things, guys breaking their knees or you know, legs. Guys yelling and screaming and your heart's pounding. You're not expecting all this commotion going on. And, Guys behind you pushing you and shit like that. And just, wait a minute, this shit wasn't happening there. We saw you had the jump commands and you have your arm up to the static line and you're about to go out and jump out the door. And... So when you go out the door, you're actually, you, you hand the static line to the jump master and you make a right or, you know, or left, depending on which side of the airplane you're in. And you exit the door and you're, you know, you count to 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000. You feel that shock and you know you look up, you see your canopy. The one I remember the most is the night jump. So one of the things that I remember clearly is is it was really beautiful because I was able to see the the moon. It was and it was really, you know, sometimes it's really dark and you don't see much, but it came to mind for some reason. And I don't know why this came up. I've had friends that have gotten killed or, or the environment that I lived in, and I'm here, I'm just enjoying this beautiful view, and just, I don't know why that came to mind, I just, that's one of the things that I do remember. It was awesome, but then you hit like a sack of shit. There was this one malfunction that I had where I think that some of that stuff is messing with my memory and a couple of things. It was a collapsed parachute, it landed a little bit harder, and I was out, not sure how long. Just came back to and had headaches and my back was killing me. You don't feel it when you're 18, 19 years old and your your body's hitting the ground like a you know sack of potatoes. 
depending on what kind of unit you're in i was uh, ended up getting attached to the 307th forward support battalion so we were a support battalion for the infantry we we're a medical battalion i was actually in a platoon with medics you're always training for war for combat uh, i did not serve in combat but you know i was ready to go and to be caught upon whenever i was needed when i was at fort bragg i actually figured i was not a u.s citizen so when you go into the military, it's different now is you're 18 years old, you're jumping out of planes or you're going off overseas or whatnot. They try to take care of everything in charge of making sure that your SGLI, your insurance, your power of attorney. There's all these different mechanisms in the military that try to make sure that all these things are done so that when you deploy, you don't have to worry about your pay or your wife getting paid or in case you die. The military never, never, I never got counseled. And I never saw any entity that said, okay, well, you know what? You need to get your citizenship. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. They do mass swearings. They, they, they have somebody follow you, from my understanding, to make sure that gets done. The difference between back then, there was a three-year waiting period for you to get your citizenship as to now, which is expedited. Finished my time with division. And then from there, re-enlisted and signed up for another three. Signed up for four the first time. From there, I had a choice of duty station and I picked El Paso, Texas. Your military job can be used in the civilian field. So I worked in air evacuations, births and deaths. It's not like a regular job because you went in from nine to five. During that time, I was going through a bunch of problems, started drinking a lot. Personal problems, you know, and, and just work stuff and then relationships. From the drinking, I started actually abusing drugs and stuff like that while I was in the military. I ended up going to one of my NCOs and I told him, you know what, I have this problem I'm using. And it was a self-referral. They couldn't, you know, they basically sent me to a substance abuse counselor. I was to do it for six months and that was it. But my counselor just, you know, hey, you know, Hector, you need to go into an inpatient. So I listened to my counselor and I ended up going to Point Loma, California for a one month inpatient. Thing is, once you're in that inpatient program, then you, you have to have a whole year of being with no incidents at all. So you could have, if you get caught once with a DUI or piss test and you come out hot, you're getting processed out. And I caught a DUI when, when I came back to El Paso, Texas in Fort Bliss. I just remember being with my cousins and some friends and, uh, and just uh, drunk out of my mind. What happens is when you go to a civilian jail, they see your military ID or whatnot, then they call the base. And I remember sobering up real quick, <laughs> like, like, fuck, you know, what did I just do? They wanted to kick me out with a dishonorable, but my NCO pretty much back, you know, back, hey, this guy's a hard worker and gets out with a dishonorable discharge, he's gonna get stigmatized. They ended up processing me out of the military, giving me an honorable discharge. I still got all my benefits, my GI Bill and all those things. And the chapter that I got is I could not re-enlist. So that, that really sucked because I really wanted to stay in. 
I had just done a six, almost six year term in the military. So like my life is over, you know, this is something that I loved. So I get out of the military. I was still having the same problems, you know, with, with alcohol and got into a deeper hole. People go through bad times, you know, and just uh, some of us are, you know, susceptible to that and some of us aren't. This was in 2001, around uh, November, December. So I decided to come visit my family in Christmas. I was still using during that time. So basically I was with some people and scoring some more dope. I ended up getting in a vehicle with somebody and, and they were on meth. They thought somebody was following us and fired a weapon at uh, the other vehicle, in a random vehicle. I'm pretty sure that he got paranoid. They took us in. One of the people that, that was fired upon said that, that I was a shooter. One of the other persons said I was not, that it was an African-American looking into attempted murders in 2001. Started was going through the whole court proceedings and, you know, the cops were asking me, well, you know, all you got to do is just tell us what happened. So that meant me telling on somebody and I just didn't do it. They said, well, you could take it all the way to court and you're looking at, you know, 15 years to life. I go, oh, shit. Or you just, just take this charge and you're, you're looking at three years with half time. I ended up pleading guilty to a discharge of a firearm. I ended up going to prison for a bit over two years. I had never really been into the system as far as, you know, prison or jail or nothing like that. So prison's a totally different world. You got to align yourself with a, with a certain race or gang or you have to, you, you have no choice. See people getting beat up for just stupid shit, you know, just for talking to the wrong person, for not wearing sandals, for just saying the wrong thing. So prison was very, it opened up my eyes to the system and, and I did not ever want to go back to prison again. <laughs> From there, they, I was supposed to parole because they gave me my parole papers too. So I was supposed to parole and then the, the guys in the holding cells are like, oh, you're going to get released and, and immigration's going to come for you. And sure enough, they came for me. Anybody who is a non-citizen that has a green card, basically, or does not have a green card, that commits a felony can be deported. Basically, anybody in prison is there for a felony, so a felony is an automatic deportation. When I finished my prison sentence, they put an immigration hold on me. So they actually called me into an office and told me, hey, do you know that you're going to be deported? I'm like, well, why? You know, I served in the military. Why would I? get deported and why is this happening to me? The thought of me getting deported and losing everything and not being able to come back was like, no way. And they put me on a plane from California to Arizona. 
So in Arizona, I was not able to get an attorney, so I had to defend myself. So now I'm fucking, you know, I'm going from being an inmate to a fucking attorney. <laughs> they, they don't appoint attorneys to you. I went before this judge. I put a package together basically saying, this is Hector Brahas, he's a good citizen, he served in the military, accomplishments, and all the different classes that I took in prison and in county jail. And part of the argument was is that because I served in the military, I'm a U.S. national. So a U.S. national is, by law or immigration law, is somebody that owes their permanent allegiance to the United States. So somebody that served the country is, you know, to me, I'm a U.S. national. Again, during that time, I did not understand what I was trying to tell the judge, now I do. He said, well, thank you for serving our country, but you know, you committed this felony and you can appeal it. If I appealed it, I was looking at another three years in prison. I do remember telling the judge I'd rather fight my case from the outside and try to vacate my case. And I was starting to understand some of the law. I was deported in 2004 to Nogales. So basically they put us in a van to other people and I just remember a gate opening up. They closed the gate and that was it. There was no receiving a Mexican authority. So like the clothes off your back and you're still kind of scared because you don't really know where the hell you're at. You've never been to this city. The only good thing that I had going on is my family was already waiting for me in Nogales and I went down south for a couple of months. I stayed with my grandmothers for a while, for about six months. Back to this, you know, little ranch that I remembered since I was a little kid and we had visited a couple of times and but now I'm like staying there permanently. My grandfather wanted me to stay here and help around the farm and I'm like this is not my life, I'm not gonna stay here. When you are deported you you sign a paper that says that if you come back and you get caught you're looking at twenty twenty years in, in you know in a federal prison, so I'm like, man, if I get caught, I'm going back to the same place I was at. My longing to being in the United States was that, fuck it, you know, and it's, you know, it's worth it. And being here, there's no way I'm staying here. I, I, I don't mind risking it. That's why there's so many people that immigrate to the United States, because if you have to cross the desert, if you have to, you know, whether it's cartels that are gonna, might kill you or kidnap you or leave you in the middle of the desert, or so many people dying, not just here in Mexico, but all over the world, that you're willing to put yourself through that so you can have a better life. So for me, it was like, better life is in the United States. It's a new worry on our southern border tonight, with border agents overwhelmed by this huge recent surge in illegal immigrants. The cartels are now taking advantage. You have a cinematic idea of what the U.S.-Mexico border looks like, razor wire, helicopters, and soaring fences. Decided to come back. Uh, I cannot get into details about how I came back, but. I crossed uh, illegally, and I, I did do that. I can, that's, you know, that's, I'm open about that. We've interviewed people that don't want to say certain elements of their life. The question I'm kind of asking you is, what's the nature of why you can't tell us? Um, just, I just can't talk about it. I went back and, you know, I started my new life. 
I actually started working uh, as a roofer for the union. And as an illegal and undocumented person, I was making $32 an hour within two years. I had a daughter, I moved in with a girlfriend, and, you know, we sort of the American family, you know, birthday parties, you know, hanging out with my family, just paying rent, you know. I couldn't tell nobody that I'm a veteran. I couldn't go to the Veterans Day Parade and wear my uniform. I couldn't get the jobs that I could probably get if I hadn't been deported. Roofing is a very hard job, and there was days when they, you know, they fucking screw you over on hours, and undocumented person, you can't say shit, you know, you got to put up with the bullshit so waking up at five o'clock in the morning to get at the job site at eight and work long hours and drive back and always you know what if they stop me what happened was i, I basically i was pulled over i had a minor infraction or i hit somebody and it was basically supposed to be a ticket but it was an accident the guy decided to run a check on the residence where i was living at i didn't pay a ticket there was a warrant for my arrest I ended up going to uh, Palmdale Court, and that's where I was working construction. I, it was time served, but then, you know, hey, you know, you're going to go through immigration again. They actually let me make a phone call so they can send all my paperwork, and they said they were going to either reinstate my deportation, let me parole but they ended up deporting me. So I got deported for 20 years the first time and I got deported for life in 2009. I only have one daughter. My, my, my daughter's name is Liana and just the love, you know, the love of my life. Uh, she was a little baby, you know, she's a little baby still. I, you know, when I got deported, was, uh, she was around four years old and uh, I just, That's the most difficult thing, I think. Everything that I've gone through, prison, all, none of that, but just being separated from your kid is very difficult. This time I was deported to Tijuana and decided I'm not gonna go back anymore, I'm gonna do it the right way because I have family involved now. And, I decided to say, well, you know what? I'm going to dedicate my full time to deported veterans, and uh, everything just led up to where we're at right now. You've been listening to Everything is Stories, a podcast brought to you by Oscilloscope Laboratories. This episode was produced by Garrett Crow, Mike Martinez, and Tyler Ray. Music in this episode was provided by Sontag Shogun. You can find links to their music at our website, everythingisstories.com. Definitely recommend giving them a listen. Over at the site, you can also find links to all of our past episodes ways to subscribe to our socials and newsletter, as well as photos taken to complement this episode by Clark Tolton. 
You can find Everything is Stories on all of the social media platforms and anywhere you consume your podcasts. Follow, like, subscribe, tell all your friends. Anything helps. Thanks for listening. And remember, nothing comes from nothing and everything is stories. Whatever else Graham Greene does, he always tells you a story. Not his old introspective musing and grousing and chewing your liver. Uh-uh, let's get on with the story. Keep me up tonight with this story you're telling me. I want to turn the page. All I ever wanted to be and all I think of myself as being is a storyteller. That's all. I just tell stories. <laughs>